coming up on Pass the Secret Sauce. The loan capital and the capital in general, I think, was was the toughest part. I being being based in DC, I think, didn't help. I think to some extent, had I been based in the Silicon Valley, maybe things would have been mm-hmm. a little different. Also, I think we investors had seen sort of the lending clubs, sort of like V1s of, of these land tech companies, and in some cases had gotten burned a little bit by it. Like mm-hmm. it's not like lending club went away, but it, you know, as you know, it sort of like went up and then it went down pretty poorly. And uh, and I think that affected a lot of these VCs who were hesitant to sort of put money in, in what mm-hmm. they saw as like maybe a lending club V2. And, uh, and, and it, was, it wasn't always uh, easy either for us to demonstrate how we were different from say like a SoFi or Common Bond, et cetera. But it, it came over time. I think people realized the uniqueness of the assets, how it behaved in, during COVID actually helped us as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we were able to show that whereas a lot of regular sort of student lenders were seeing high rates of forbearances or, or uh, delinquencies, in our case, the international students were sort of holding like fast and steady in terms of uh, loan repayment performance during that time. Mm-hmm. And I think that that rang a, a light bulb uh, inside the head of a lot of asset managers and credit funds uh, in the U.S. who are like, you know what, this is exactly what I need to sort of like diversify yeah. from my existing portfolio or just, you know, add to it and, and enhance my, res, uh, my returns. Uh, because we're, you know, essentially we, we became a credit funds wet dream in that we are returning higher, much higher returns than what they would get regularly on the market. And the volatility was less. Welcome to the show. I'm Matt Shields. On Pass the Secret Sauce, we unscramble the life stories, skills, and secrets from the most wicked smart minds and interesting people to uncover their experience and recipes for success that will help you get an edge on your own life. My goal is to help you rein in on the chaos that life throws at us by learning from other high achievers. If you're new to the show, we have episodes with founders, CEOs, investors, and leaders. So if you like to learn and are motivated to improve your life, then kick back and listen to our guests pass their secret sauce. Today on Pass the Secret Sauce, we have Manu Smaja, who is the CEO of Empower Financing. So Empower Financing helps overseas students finance and pay for their higher education in the U.S. So this is a interesting business model that that Manu has put together because it really involves three different entities coming together to to make this happen. So a lot of times we talk about, you know, the the chicken and the egg problem that a lot of businesses have, you know, we we can't create this or we can't fund this until we have something else. In this situation, they needed to put together investors, they needed to bring on colleges, and they also needed to pull together students. So they kind of had a a trifecta of people that they had to connect together in order to make their business happen. So obviously, we get into some of the trials and tribulations, how they did that, some of the challenges and struggles. But Manu has a great way of explaining what they identifying and explaining what the challenges were that they had initially and what they did to overcome them. So we we talk about all kinds of different things, but really, really interesting how they've grown and scaled their business in that that sort of three prong approach. And each approach sort of had to have its own 
initiative, own marketing, own way of of reaching out to people. So they've done a fantastic job growing their company. Uh, again, we get into some of the techniques and strategies that they've used over the years, and uh, couldn't couldn't agree more with what he was talking about and how to grow and scale a company. So with that, I hope you enjoy today's episode of Pass the Secret Sauce. So I had a uh, a French dinner table. I'm originally from France. I spent most of my childhood uh, there through high school. And so, you know, around the dinner table where my parents, although my dad was, was often traveling, uh, and my three siblings... And then, um, yeah, a lot of, I remember a lot of soups. Uh, my mom soups. Used, used to make a lot of uh, vegetable soups. So that's, uh, that's what I remember, soups and salad. Doesn't get more French than that in a way. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to say, is that, is that, you know, common, you know, for, for French families to, to, you know, that's kind of the main staples? I think, think so. My, my mom was maybe more health conscious than, than most. So I feel like uh, she, she gave us a good nutritional education, which I've, I've done a really poor job following uh, in the years <laughs> after that. But uh, yeah, I got to say it was raised on soups and salads. Yeah, yeah. And, and what, uh, what did your dad do? You said he's not around as much. Was he more of an entrepreneurial type position? Um, or? Later in life, he, uh, he, worked, he worked in the packaging industry out of, out of all places. And so he was, uh, he was sort of a, a GM. Uh, and then before that, sort of a marketing executive in, uh, in packaging. So I think like um, really exciting things like cardboard or plastic mm-hmm. packaging for industrial goods, like uh, your um, cereal box from a Nestle brand in Europe and, mm-hmm. and things like that. So he had a, a career doing that. And then he became an entrepreneur at a similar time as me in a way, maybe a, a few years huh. earlier in uh, boating equipment. He was very okay. passionate about the sea. We're, we're very alike and very different in many ways. I can't, I can't be caught dead on, on a boat. I get seasick very easily. And, uh, you know, he's been on boats since uh, a, being a young kid. So uh, it's, it's kind of fun. He's, he's fascinated by the sea. Yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. So, so what was the catalyst that got you into uh, entrepreneurialism? What was, you know, kind of your first dipping of your toe in? Or, or I guess the, even the, the uh, you know, just the impetus of, of you know, wanting to, to, you know, hang your own shingle and, and start your own company? So I'm an accidental entrepreneur. Uh, so I, I never even dreamed of being an entrepreneur uh, in any way. So it was uh, almost like a religious calling. So I, I had a fairly boring sort of, you know, or, or more linear sort of career path that I started. I was at Capital One as a, as a business analyst and then moved on and uh, was, was an operations analyst for a tech company in Boston, got an MBA at INSEAD in Europe joined McKinsey. So, you know, I had, had fun there uh, doing financial services work around the planet, worked in sub-Saharan Africa, went to Brazil oh, wow. for, for some work. So it was, it was really exciting, really fun. And I was having a great time there. And then in early 2014, a student reached out to me, a student from my alma mater. I went to, to UVA, University of Virginia. Mm-hmm. And he reached out to me and a few other alumni. And he said the following, he said, hey guys, I'm $500 short on my rent this month. I'm going to get evicted and I'm thinking about dropping out of school. Mm-hmm. And, and that really shook me. At McKinsey, I was doing financial services work, but really financial inclusion work. I was doing uh, money, mobile money in, in Nigeria. I was doing sort of mass market banking in the US. So, so there was a, a sort of impact angle to what I was doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, the student's experience, in addition to being sort of like squarely in my field, also resonated personally. 
So one thing about me is 23 years ago, when I went to school at UVA, I struggled financially through school. Mm-hmm. I did fine academically, but I took a bunch of odd jobs to get through school. And thankfully, you know, my parents sacrificed a lot uh, to get me through it. Uh, and so it, it, I had that experience and then the experience repeated itself when about a decade later, my younger sister came to the U.S. Uh, and did, uh, essentially had faced the same challenge. Mm-hmm. She, uh, she got into schools, but she was struggling financially through it. And so as big brother, I was able to help. But same thing. If, if I wasn't there, how would she have paid for her education? Yeah. So, so anyway, so when the student reached out, the student Nick reached out about eight years ago, it, it, it sort of like brought me to a halt. I thought, well, shit, this, this really resonates. This, uh, and this keeps being sort of a theme in my life. And, um, and why aren't banks doing anything? And then I thought, why isn't anyone doing anything about this? And then I thought, why am I not doing anything about this? Like the mm-hmm. writing couldn't be any more on the wall. And, um, you know, I, being the good little management consultant I was, I, I decided to analyze the market a little bit and, and understand more about it and realized it was uh, not just a good impact opportunity, it was a great financial opportunity. And in a way, I, I felt like I didn't have a choice. Like my heart was really calling me in that direction. And mm-hmm. so uh, <laughs> I jumped ahead with two feet, left my, uh, my cushy job at, at McKinsey. And uh, initially, I didn't really have a clue what entrepreneurship was about or, or what I needed to do. I just knew I needed to find a solution to this. And so I partnered with a serial entrepreneur friend of mine from business school, Mike Davis, and uh, the two of us went at it. And, and here we are now, eight years later. Yeah, yeah. What were some of those initial things that you guys, you know, sort of focused, focused in on? You, you saw this, this need, right? Uh, and then you brought someone else in, which was really smart. Someone who else, you know, you said was a serial entrepreneur. So we've done this a few times before. Uh, it sounds like what were some of your initial things that you were looking at? At this point, you had already, you know, quit your job. Like you said, jumped in with both feet. Was there was there things that you, you know, were unsure of or needed to figure out or, you know, taking those first steps, what were those first initial steps that you you guys decided to take? Because I think that this is something that a lot of people struggle with, right? You know, they, they, you are probably in some type of a, you know, a, a stable position, but there's something else calling to them, some other way that they, some other opportunity that they see. And, but they, they're not quite sure, you know, is this right? Do, am I in the right position? Do I have the right answers? And you know, my 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 answer to that is is there's never a right time. You just kind of have to jump in and figure it out. But I'm I'm curious what your what your thoughts were as you were going through that. What were, what were some of those initial things that you were you know sort of focused on to to set up? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Mike. It is a bit of a there's always an element of a leap of faith in it, right? You can't control the macro environment. You can't control things you don't know. You don't know, etc. So. But there are things I think that we did that I'm, I'm happy we did uh, in retrospect. One is, as, as Mike and I embarked on this, we wrote out what we wanted to achieve in the first 180 days. So we said, okay, let's, in six months, we got to have, and I, I forget the sort of the exact numbers, but it was like X number of schools signed up to work with us. Mm-hmm. Y dollars in revenue, Z numbers of students that we were able to finance. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then there was you know, so, so essentially some, some OKRs or some KPIs and then some, some goals alongside this we had to have built like a, an initial, uh, some kind of initial platform and so on. Mm-hmm. And um, so, so we went at it and, uh, and after six months, we, we didn't tick the box on all of those, but we, as we reviewed it, we were like, yeah, we got close enough that there's something here and mm-hmm. let's go on. 
Mike until that point had not quit his job full time. And I until that point had still had sort of open job offers to go to go elsewhere and take more of a corporate job if I needed the door at McKinsey was still open. And so, mm-hmm. you know, we we had minimized the risk that way. We had some level of savings on our bank accounts, et cetera. So we 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 had hedged as much as we could. So even though I said I went in two feet forward, we weren't necessarily crazy or completely reckless in, in our approach either. We we had some kind of uh, downside risk mitigation in place, mm-hmm. and so that's uh, that's what we did, and uh, it was really exciting. Yeah, yeah, no, that sounds great. And and so you have a couple of different players, like you said, you identify those those different those different people, and and those are completely different industries. You know, you've got some type of a funding source there. You've got the schools. You've got the students. Which one was the most difficult to, you know, acquire and and, and get on board? You know, in those initial days, would you say? Because so, I, I feel like it's sort of like a chicken and egg, you know, a three way chicken and egg type problem, right? You can't have one without the others, and that's so right. it was a three sided marketplace, and it was uh, it always had, and and it, through our journey, there's always uh, one of those three always becomes a bottleneck. Mm-hmm. Right. And initially, initially, we had challenges across all three. Uh, we had zero credibility with schools, right? We were two guys in a pitch deck. Yeah. And, uh, and get a free intern uh, that we brought on board. And so, you know, we, I, I tried cold emailing schools like Harvard, et cetera, just to show how naive I was. And, you know, they not only did they not do anything with us, they didn't even respond. They're like, yeah. who is this sort of nobody? Schools, for, for the fun fact, are are entities that are really thinking in sort of hundreds of years or at least decades, right? They've yeah. been here for 150, 200 years, and they intend to be there for the next 150 to 200. So they don't affiliate very quickly with a sort of an early stage startup. So, yeah. so, so that was a challenge. The, the students were slightly less of a challenge, but again, the students who came to us in, in that first year had to be absolutely desperate for funding because yeah. we, Again, the the depth the website was sort of designed by yours truly, which is to say, like it was horrendous looking. <laughs> it, it would probably give you zero confidence that you're yeah, right <laughs> from this entity. Like online, am I going to have to sell a liver for this or yeah. what? what is that? Yes, it's pretty much like it's either this or giving away a kidney. Uh, so, <laughs> so, so you know, they they definitely took a chance on us, even though we're lending money. So it's not as as big of a risk as investing or anything like that. It was still. You know, like, like, who the hell are these guys? Wait, and a lot of them came on uh, my LinkedIn page or Mike Davis's LinkedIn page just to make sure we were real people and we weren't too shady. So, so that was uh, that was a mild challenge, but somewhat surmountable. the The funding was tough, right? I mm-hmm. think, especially nowadays, it's getting I think a bit easier and easier. We've and we've done our at least our little part to try to democratize this idea that like hey we need uh, immigrants in general but high skilled labor even more so these are incredibly valuable to the US mm-hmm. educational system to the US economy etc 8 years ago this was it wasn't novel but i, I think it wasn't as uh, as accepted the number of international students was less and uh, and so convincing investors both on the equity side and on the loan capital side mm-hmm. that you know somehow <laughs> Me as a first-time entrepreneur and uh, my person co-founder were, were going to like crack this space, figure out, had figured out an algorithm to lend to these students in a way that was going to get our money back, that the market was big enough, et cetera. It was a, it was a very real challenge. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure. And, and 
with the school side of things, you know, you, you mentioned that it was really difficult to get into them. And again, this is something, you know, just like you know, all entrepreneurs struggle with this in the, in the first place, you know, how do you get in and get your first customers? What did you find was finally the, you know, kind of the breaking point that allowed you to be able to, to reach and connect to the right, you know, the right people? Was there, you know, a certain campaign or something like that? And you don't have to go into the specifics of the campaign, but what, what was ultimately what, you know, kind of cracked open the door to be able to, you know, get those initial schools on board or school on board even? So it's probably 20% persistence and 80% luck. We, we got Harvard as our first partner. Oh, wow. And uh, yeah, yeah which, which is great. And, uh, and which really gave us a lot of credibility afterwards. But how we, how we got Harvard as a first partner was, was in itself a, a huge amount of luck and probably like a story over beers at, at one point. But uh, from there, it made things easier because they gave us immediate credibility. It, it allowed us also to have a few more loans of great quality on our balance sheet and, and have a few sort of stories and cases we could then tell other schools. And even with that, it was still a challenge to, uh, to add other schools. And so we hired a head of sales. And um, what's interesting is, is Mike and I, when we went to speak with uh, the university relations, so sorry, with the um, financial aid offices or even admissions early on, it, we just didn't, we didn't look the part. We didn't dress that. Like we, we were dressed like Wall Street. That, that mm-hmm. was sort of our, our backgrounds were in financial services. And, and it just didn't click as much with sort of the, the academia, financial aid, sort of back office. And, and the, the, the cultures didn't, didn't gel. And it, and it was just like we, we were doomed from the start. And so we, we hired someone who was from that background and who you know would be able to say hey Mary Lou like remember me like we went to the same sort of financial mm-hmm. aid conference in Puerto Rico like eight years ago etc and uh and that immediately opened the door for us and then from there we were able to say well you know we help international students who you can't fund today for your mm-hmm. school and you know you probably have someone you know in the past week that came to your office crying because they couldn't pay their tuition for this semester or the next one and so, you know, it, it gave us the opportunity to at least pitch to, to these universities and uh, gave us the first foot in the door. And then we were able to, uh, to close, essentially. Yeah, yeah. So that, that was critical. So, so essentially, uh, failing and then asking for help is the, is the lesson there. Um, yeah, I like it. I like it. I'm just curious, you know, how, how your, your presentation has changed now, you know, especially after hiring that you know, hiring that, that, that person that, you know, sort of made you or gave you the, the, the foot in the door. And again, I think that this is something that a lot of people struggle with is like you said, you, you didn't fit the part you weren't, you know, you, you felt like you were going in impressing people. And I, I kind of picture, picture you guys, you know, walking in in like a three piece suit and all dressed up and, you know, you know, they maybe are there like in, you know, just a regular sweater or t-shirt, you know, so you know, walking into situations like that, I've had, I've had people tell me like, you can't sell unless you're in a suit, right? Like that's, that's part of it. I guess it depends on what the market is. I'm personally a t-shirt kind of guy. I'd rather, you know, walk in and be the guy that kind of stands out from everybody else. And, and, you know, is, is the one that knows his stuff, but doesn't necessarily seem so uptight and and stuffy where, Mm -hmm. you know, everybody else, you know, kind of walks in and they all look the same and you can't pick them out anyway. So, so I'm just curious, you know, has your approach changed and does that resonate with you, you know, sort of standing out on your own, you know, differently from what, 
you know, maybe, I don't know if you have you know, many com- competitors at this point, but, you know, just basically standing out to identify, resonate with people a little bit more on their own level, you know, through dress, through body language, all of that, rather than trying to dress to impress, you know, in that, in that position. Does that make sense? It does. It does. You know, how we, how we evolved. And I think we, I've evolved as a person a lot. Also, I think uh, it, there were some insecurities at the time mm-hmm. we, it, and you know, not that like everything's gone or changed, you know, I'm always working on myself, but I think now over the past few years and, and COVID to some extent has helped. I think I, and, and a lot of people have learned to bring really themselves authentically to work, mm-hmm. right? We've seen, uh, you know, people with their, with their babies at home coming in, you know, in the middle of like a zoom meeting, et cetera. Right. And, and, and I like that. I like that. Uh, it, it's sort of like, it got rid of all sort of the corporate like facade or, or BS. And, you know, we, we essentially, even though it was through zoom, people ended up meeting as humans mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. versus as, as employees uh, before. And so that helped catalyze it. But for me, I think uh, I had started to, to go down that path in the years that empower. So over the past eight years, I feel like more and more, I, you know, dropped the suit, relaxed a little bit, mm-hmm. I felt more comfortable just being myself and, and maybe a bit more jokingly than, you know, than I was in the initial stages. I got comfortable, I guess yeah, is what you yeah. can say. And, and, and there's an element of confidence with all of that as well. So that's, that's probably the core, you know, the core element is that you're, you're confident enough to be comfortable and be yourself and present that. And yeah, I, I completely agree. I mean, obviously there's, there's a point in your life where you're trying to impress everyone. And then at a certain point, it's like, okay, you know, it is what it is at, the, at this point. So, so, so what, what, what were some of the later challenges, you know, with scaling all of this that you ran into, you know, you've, you've gotten in your foot in the door with a couple of people or a couple of, of, you know, different schools. Did you run into any major hurdles or anything like that, you know, building it out, would you say, or is it pretty well just sort of rinse and repeat, you know, school after school? Oh, we, we cruised over the past eight years. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm I don't think any entrepreneur ever says that, or if they, if they do, I, I really want to meet them and, and ask them how they do it. No, it was, um, the, the schools became after I would say the initial dozen or so. So the, the first one was by far the hardest. Right. Mm-hmm. And then after that, once we got that university relations director on board, he really helped us with the next sort of dozen and then 30. And then after it, it was really after that, it was sort of a domino effect. There's a, there's a bit of a herd mentality and, uh, and sort of comfort in numbers in the higher ed uh, space. So, so when you know that, you know, Harvard and Babson or BU, and et cetera, are, are working with Empower, then for Northeastern, it's easier to, to say, yes, yeah. let's do it. Yeah. And so, so that, that quickly, that problem quickly went away. The students flooded our website. There was, there was clearly a need uh, in this space. And, and that's not hard to imagine. I mean, there's, there's today 1.75 million international students in the U.S. and Canada alone, mm-hmm. and those are the ones who make it. There's there's millions who would love the chance to study in North America at a at a top school, at any school in in some cases, and so so we could multiply the market by 10x just by enabling them financially to come over. Yeah. So there's a the the opportunity uh, is there, and you know over the past eight years we're able to demonstrate that just through sheer growth. Hey, it's Matt. If you've been listening to my podcast for a while, you know that I've been involved in the multifamily real estate realm for a while. It's something that I truly, truly enjoy, and I wanted you, my listeners, to be the first to know about something new coming out. We're calling it the MultiWiser Deal Room. It's a community of individuals just like you who want to get wise about multifamily real estate investing, developing, and even owning and managing your own complexes. 
You'll be able to network with people from all sections of the industry, from investors looking for deals, project managers looking for investors, real estate brokers, property management agencies, contractors, remodeling experts, finance gurus, you name it, we're going to have it in the network. I've been at this for a while, and I know it takes a community to make just one of these projects happen. And the MultiWiser Deal Room is my attempt to shorten your learning curve and get you plugged into leading experts fast who can help you close your own deals. We start off with a video glossary of over 150 commonly used terms to increase your understanding and help you get moving. Also included in the community are training videos to help you be successful, like how to put together a pitch deck, build a team, and so much more. We're going to have live interactive Zoom calls where you can ask your questions and learn from people who are actually out there in the industry doing it. For more information, go to multiwiser.com. The loan capital and the capital in general, I think, was was the toughest part. I Being being based in D.C., I think, didn't help. I think to some extent, had I been based in the Silicon Valley, maybe things would have been mm-hmm. a little different. Also, I think we investors had seen sort of the lending clubs, sort of like V1s of, of these land tech companies. And in some cases, had gotten burned a little bit by it. Like mm-hmm. it's not like lending club went away, but it, you know, as you know, it sort of like went up and then it went down pretty poorly. And, uh, and I think that affected a lot of these VCs who were hesitant to sort of put money in, in mm-hmm. what they saw as like maybe a lending club V2. And, uh, and, and it, was, it wasn't always uh, easy either for us to demonstrate how we were different from say like a SoFi or Common Bond, et cetera. But it, it came over time. I think people realized the uniqueness of the assets, how it behaved in, during COVID actually helped us as well. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. we were able to show that whereas a lot of regular sort of student lenders we're seeing high rates of forbearances or, or uh, delinquencies. In our case, the international students were sort of holding like fast and steady in terms of uh, loan repayment performance during that time. Mm-hmm. And I think that that rang a, a light bulb uh, inside the head of a lot of asset managers and credit funds uh, in the U.S. who are like, you know what, this is exactly what I need to sort of like diversify yeah. from my existing portfolio or just you know, add to it and, and enhance my, res, uh, my returns uh, because we're, you know, essentially we, we became a credit funds wet dream in that we are returning higher, much higher returns than what they would get regularly on the market and the volatility was less. Yeah, interesting. Uh, so we, we became entrenched as a financial product. Did you, did you find out why the international students had a, a lower rate of default than what the, we'll call them domestic students had is there was there a reason for that a, a little bit there's a there's a few factors at play and i wouldn't be able to tell you it's you know 70 percent because of this and 30 percent because of that but i'll, I'll share a, a few things so one is 50 uh, percent of all international students in north america are coming in at the graduate level and we know that graduate students already have a lower default rate mm-hmm. than undergrads and i don't know what the exact breakdown is for american students but it's probably like 90 80 or 90 percent undergrad and then the rest grad so, so there's, there's a huge element there. 70 to 80% of international students to North America are going to the top 400 or so universities. So really high concentration in uh, good brand name schools. Uh, not all of them had a, have a great return on investment, but most of them do. And they have a brand that supports them with career placement, et cetera. So that's another mm-hmm. plus. And then the other aspect is a huge percentage, 80%, for instance, of Indian students 
are coming to the U.S. for degrees in STEM, right? So computer science, mechanical engineering, biology, mathematics, you name it. And those have uh, a really high placement rate and really good salaries after graduation. They're also a good indication of sort of the level of discipline, diligence, and comfort with numbers that these students have. So not only is it sort of, it showcases the capacity to pay for the students, it's also a really good indicator of their willingness to pay or at least of their financial literacy. So, so those are factors that help us. And I think it's important to take a step back and realize that like, yes, even though it's almost 2 million international students in the US and Canada, it's 2 million of six plus billion people around the planet. And it's really the cream of the crop that makes it here. Yeah. Uh, oftentimes th- their parents may not be rich in sort of dollars, but you know, they, they're often fairly educated in the home country and they're able to support, you know, during tough times and so on. And so there's, um, there's a certain sort of um, financial fluency, financial comfort that some of these students come from. And then there's a certain amount of like positive signaling uh, that's mm-hmm. coming from the fact that they're willing to like leave everything behind travel halfway across the planet to invest in themselves in an education. Yeah. Uh, whereas for American students, you know, some of them, for some of them, they never questioned whether or not they would go to college. It was sort of like the next step in the process. Yeah. It wasn't as much of like a, a battlefield to make it here. And, and, yeah. and I, I don't want to generalize, like for a lot of students, sadly in the US, it still very much is that like a, a battlefield and, and a huge achievement if they make it to college and oftentimes they're the first in their family to do so. But for international students, it's uh, you, you have all this plus the financial challenge, plus you're adding in immigration challenges, cultural challenges, and the personal risk of leaving family and friends and culture behind. Yeah. Yeah. No, that makes perfect sense. You, you mentioned sort of in the, in the middle of that, you know, the, the, the students are going to these you know, name brand schools. I, I'm curious if you ever considered, basically the way that I'm kind of looking at this is, you know, you basically signed pretty well the name brand school right off the bat, right? Was there, were you guys, I guess, focused on, you know, let's go for the biggest, the best first, and then we'll uh, allow that to sort of trick you, uh, matriculate down onto the the other schools and and you know we've we've got harvard so everybody else if we've got harvard everybody else will fall in line you know so really really difficult to be able to get them maybe it would have been easier to get some of the smaller schools first and then you know move your way up i'm i'm just curious you know your thought process spending time on you know the 800 pound gorilla versus you know maybe taking out some of the smaller players first you could have gotten to them maybe easier was there was there any thought process into you know what what direction you should go and and you know why you chose going that that direction? I, I would love to take credit for like a well planned out strategy that was like <laughs> you know what let's get the the eight hundred pound gorilla and then move from there. In reality, it was a little bit of a fluke. It was like I said, it was eighty percent chance. We 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 had a spray and pray strategy, and uh, for through just like a, a, a really interesting set of circumstances, we, we managed to get in front of Harvard and made a compelling case at a, need when they need, at a time when they really needed this for one of the new programs they were creating. Mm-hmm. And then through some internal Harvard policy, because they were listing us at one part of the campus, they had to list us across the rest of the campus. Okay. So, okay. so it's just like, 
it, like I said, it was uh, it was just an interesting set of uh, of coincidences that led us to to be uh, listed there as a as a preferred lender uh, early on. But yeah, I, I think we couldn't have asked for a better partner. Yeah, right. And I wish I could, you know, claim like, yes, this was totally thought out. It, it really <laughs> wasn't. It was, it was really just like, please, we're really trying to get this off the ground. Like any, yeah. anyone will do. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I love that. I love that story. There's, there's obviously so many, so many uh, chance happenings that, that everybody sort of, you know, stumbles across, you know, throughout their, throughout their process. Is there anything that you would say that you ran into that you wish you had done differently? Any, any learnings, you know, sort of looking back, like, you know, this was, this was something that, you know, we could have approached this way or that way. Anything stand out, out of curiosity? There's a, a lot of learning along the way. I think, I, I'm not even sure where to start. In, in recruiting, I think, it, well, there's, there's a lot also on the, on the personal level. I wish I'd worked at a startup or growth company before, before mm-hmm. starting my own. I think everything was new to me versus I feel like if I had worked even at, at an established one, like a Netflix or, or whatever, I would, have, I would have picked up on sort of the ups and downs of the startup world, et cetera. And, and without you know, me being in charge of payroll and the direction of the company and everything in a, in a sort of like less emotionally involved way. And, mm-hmm. uh, and, and maybe that would have just decreased my stress levels in the, in the early years or, or given me some more best practices to look at. So, so on the personal level, I would say I wish I'd done that. Uh, so maybe guidance for, for maybe more junior uh, listeners. The, um, the other thing that jumps to mind is on the recruiting front. I think on that same line of thought, we hired a lot of fairly senior corporate people initially. And, and they're really nice and, and really bright, but I think they really struggled with sort of the nimble, roll up your sleeves, get, the, get things done quickly uh, mm-hmm. sort, of, uh, sort of mantra, uh, especially in a place like DC, which is very uh, by, by design sort of compliance and, and legal focused. And not that those two can't go together. I think we pride ourselves in actually being, a, you know, not a break everything type of startup, but actually like work well within uh, the regulatory frameworks and make regulation your, your friend. But, but still, we hired some corporate profiles who I think were great people, but really struggled. And so I think what we put in place later on is uh, a huge advantage in our, in our sort of recruiting scorecard is to have a startup uh, or growth company experience. Okay. Because that person knows how to, presumably, if they've done well at a previous shop, they, they know how to get results done quickly. They know how to deal with uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Uh, with the ups and downs and the fast pace of a growth company, uh, which is a very different skill set than sort of the having a, a team of like 3000 people under you and, you know, setting, you know, more strategy, et cetera. There's not a whole lot of strategy, I think, in a, in a growth company. Like the strategy is me and maybe a board member and, and one or two other members of the executive team. And, and even then it's very simple, like grow, right? And so- yeah. Especially yeah. if you're if your product, if you have product market fit, it's just like grow. It, there's no like, hey, should we acquire this other company? Should we move to Western Europe? Like that, that's not really much of a concern. And so, so anyway, how do you find people that can really just focus on growth and execution? Yeah, and and that that last that last word, their execution. I'm curious your thoughts on this. So I think I think what a lot of new companies do is there there's there's a lot of focus on a lot of different things, right? So, you know, or I should say there, there's 
energy spent in a lot of different areas, which basically equates to not much execution. So you might you know touch on this, touch on this, and now we need this, and we're over here, and oh now now this is the most important thing. What are your thoughts on I guess you know identifying what needs to be done and how do you identify you know what needs to be done? What is the most important thing? What is the best thing to spend my time on? Versus you know the mentality of let's get things done and and like you said, grow, grow is the most important thing, but what, what lever are you going to pull or what thing is the, the thing we need to do right now to make sure that we do grow and, you know, make sure that we have enough focus on whatever that is and not letting, you know, other things sort of distract us, you know, before we get whatever those results are that we're looking for. Does that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. Right. So that there's a notion of possibilities and then there's always sort of several levers we, we have for, for growth and we could be shooting in many different directions. How do we how do we decide sort of where to focus our attention? I think there's two, there's sort of a, the, how, do we, how do we figure out and then how do we enforce it? The how do we figure out is from very early on, we, we copied best practices from Capital One, Vistaprint, McKinsey, and other sort of very sort of heavy. Yeah, yeah. In, in my background, but also very sort of analytical and quant heavy companies yeah. where you sort of measure everything. It's also fairly flat in that. Uh, data trumps experience or expertise. So, you know, the entry-level associate, if if she or he has the data to support something, will trump whatever the VP thinks is a good idea. Mm-hmm. And so we we put in place massive sort of infrastructure early on for access to data, and we made sure we measured everything. And that was true in HR. It was certainly true for our customer funnel, our partners, and so on. And so that it, and then we hired accordingly, right? We, there's no poets at Empower, like everyone has to have a certain level of sort of both digital fluency, but also analytical fluency, uh, because that's how we make the decisions. And that's how we decide where to focus on. And so we, that helps us identify, okay, well, do we invest more in digital marketing? Do we partner with more schools? Do we expand to, to another country? Do we, and do we double down on, on this partnership? So that's, that's how we make those decisions. Now, how do we enforce it? Focus to your earlier point is the key. So we push everyone, and I obviously I, I drink my my own Kool Aid on this one, or, or that's not the American uh, expression. Yeah, I think I, that's it. Yeah, I drink. I, the I think my own I, medicine, or yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. I drink. So, yeah, I drink my own Kool Aid. Yeah, I think so. So, so on, it works. on this one, we uh, we'll, we'll say it works. I always use like American idioms in, in the wrong way, so it's <laughs> usually funny to a lot of my colleagues. But what uh, what we do is. Um, we set pretty clear goals, uh, not just on a yearly basis or quarterly basis, but even weekly. Everyone at the company, you know, fills out what are the sort of like five to eight things they want to get done on a trailer board on a weekly basis. And every day as teams, usually units of no more than you know seven or eight people, we go through it as a group. And then we check out at the end of the day. And these are sort of like the top three things I was able to do. And so we, there's sort of a, a system of accountability that allows us, you know, not only to commit to these three things, but also to stay focused on these, um, because otherwise a few things happen. One, we get distracted and end up sort of shooting in all directions. Two, we shoot in different directions uh, for different people. And then or three <laughs> and or three, uh, we get burned out, right? And, and people end up working till midnight or three in the morning because they, they want to do 17 things, uh, yeah, of which yeah. maybe a dozen don't matter as much. Yep. Yeah, no, exactly. And I, I'm curious... Have you ever read the uh, the four disciplines of execution by chance? I have not. But that's oh, that's fantastic! So, so it, it's exactly what you just described. You know, we're basically I I just stumbled across this 
actually from another conversation I had on, on another one of the another episode of the podcast. But real, real brief explanation. Essentially, you have your whirlwind that's always going on. You know, you, that's something that all of that stuff all needs to get done. But they they have a process that allows you to I uh, basically identify these are the things that we you know should be working on, and you know it's up to the the you know the staff member, the employee to consciously make an effort to make sure that they they spend the time to get whatever those things are done and you know still have the whirlwind going on behind them so just really fascinating way to be able to break that apart but it's exactly what you what you're describing there where you know you have your weekly meetings you know I'm Matt I committed last week to getting this done this is what I got done this was a challenge or you know maybe I hey I I I, uh, committed to getting this done but I got this this and this done you know so so just you know exact same thing you guys are doing. And I, I just was curious because uh, it sounds, you know, it sounds exactly like that, but yeah, four disciplines of execution, really, really good book, good framework uh, in there to, to, to uh, you know, anybody who's, who's interested in that exact same philosophy, great way to be able to, you know, sort of execute that. So, so read four disciplines of execution to execute. So anyway, yeah, no, really, really interesting stuff. I love, I, I love talking, you know, founding companies and growing companies and, all of the trials and tribulations that you run into and you guys seem like you have done a great job navigating all of that and, you know, put your systems in place to, to be able to, you know, make sure that everyone's, you know, rowing in the right direction and, you know, moving in the same direction. Uh, if, if people, you know, anywhere across your spectrum of, of clients, or maybe even someone who's interested in reaching out to you personally, what would be the best way to learn more, reach out, get in touch, you know, what, what will be the, uh, the direction you would send them? Sure. I, I think it depends uh, what for exactly. I think if they want to learn more about if they're a student international or DACA or, or American student, even they, they can find out about us on our website, www.empowerfinancing.com. Empower is uh, essentially M-P-O-W-E-R. So without the, the first E. And uh, they can find out about our loans, our scholarships, our, our social impact, uh, who we are as a team and a culture, et cetera. If they want to get in touch with me, I think LinkedIn is uh, is the best way. I, I have one or two maybe Medium articles that I published, but uh, LinkedIn is probably the the easiest. Uh, Manu Smaja or Emmanuel Smaja, I think, is uh, my my full name on, on LinkedIn. And then uh, yeah, otherwise we you know we try to push out content on uh, on Twitter, uh, even Instagram or Facebook, etc. Uh, lots of job openings uh, in case people are interested in working oh, in offices in DC and Bangalore. Hopefully, I think I've covered most of it. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And what, what types of uh, positions are you hiring for right now? It, everything. We're in hyper growth mode. So we, we have over 100 openings right wow. now in, in DC and Bangalore. And we even have some sort of location flexibility uh, beyond that if, if people are not excited about relocating. We, as every single company on the planet at this point, we're, we're really looking for tech talent. Uh, yeah. There's really a global war on, on tech talent at this point. So, so if you're an engineer, a data analyst, QA, you know, any, any technical sort of role, we, we probably need your skill set and would love to, to speak with you. And I, again, you can go on our career site to, to see what's available, but we we're looking for a broad spectrum. So even if you're not, if you don't have a technical background, uh, we probably need your skill set in, in other areas. Yeah. Love that. Love that. And, and what is it like, I'm, I'm curious from your perspective, managing a company that, you know, what is your current total employee list right now? And, you know, obviously you said, you know, you're looking for 
substantial number more. But um, what's it? What, what is it like running a company with that many people at this point? What, you know, any any learnings there with you know again scaling and sort of setting in place those those you know managerial goals? I guess you can say for you know people that are you know might have a specific focus, which kind of gets back to you know the the execution part that we just t- talked about a few minutes ago. But any any tips there as far as uh, scaling and growing and managing? large numbers of people? So, so we're more than 100 people today, uh, which is a long way from two, two co-founders and an intern mm-hmm. uh, eight years back. And, uh, and like I said, growing quickly, so we'll double the, the size of our global team again this year. You know, tips for management, I think what, what can happen, especially if you grow quickly, there's a few risks. One is, you know, are you democratizing sort of access to uh, data and decision-making quick enough? Right? Or are you still sort of concentrating on everything in, in the founder or in the C-suite, in which case you can bring the organization at a standstill? And then the other danger that can happen is you grow so quickly that you lose your culture as a company. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so those are two things, at least, that, that were on our radar early on and that we've, we've tried to mitigate as much as possible. So to my earlier example around democratizing data and putting a lot of data infrastructure in place, not only does it help sort of level the playing field between the entry-level analyst and, and the VP, but it actually also helps onboard people a lot faster and um, also democratizes sort of decision-making in general, right? So mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't have to be the decider of all things at Empower, neither does the C-suite. Like people can look at the data and, and we have the frameworks in place to quickly allow them to you know, make financial decisions, investment decisions, development or testing decisions on their own. So that's one thing we 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 pushed hard on and and uh, you know put in place a lot of these frameworks in in the past years, and then on the culture side, we are ruthless about hiring people that fit the mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. That that's one thing I'll never you know I'll never sacrifice uh, or compromise on is we we hire people who are passionate about making an impact, and it doesn't have to be sort of like they, they've always been in the sort of like student loan financing or education sector, right? They, they're just passionate about making an impact in other human beings, uh, in, in the lives of other human beings. And so they might have worked in the health tech sector. They might have worked for an NGO at some point. They might have been tutoring uh, students for ESL in their free time. But they have demonstrated commitment to essentially um, empowering others Mm-hmm. And uh, we found that that dedication to impact that mission focus in, in folks helps us achieve a, a couple of things. One, it really binds everyone together. It's sort of that shared uh, sense of mission we all have. And it also translates into uh, more collaboration within the company. I think it's hard to hire people who are extremely caring about others from a customer standpoint, but are somehow assholes to their colleagues. Like those yeah, two don't bring right. it together. Usually they're, right. they're good people externally and internally. And so, um, so, so that's helped us uh, essentially even in a hyper growth mode, stay true to who we are as mm-hmm. a company culture. Yeah, I love it. Great, great, uh, great philosophy, great approach there. And yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. I mean, when you, when you start getting a few assholes in the, in the company, you know, it certainly shows itself pretty quickly, but, uh, but, you know, it can certainly, you know, turn the, turn the muddy, turn the waters muddy, another American <laughs> name or uh, uh, saying there for you, but the, it gets it gets pretty uh, convoluted pretty quickly. So, so yeah, great uh, great advice there, Benu. This has been fantastic. Uh, I certainly appreciate the time, and uh, congrats on all the success. You guys have done some amazing things over the years, and thanks for sharing it with us. 
Thanks so much, Matt. This was great fun. Thanks for having me having fun. So I appreciate exactly. you having me on this show and uh, stay in touch. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. And remember, pass the secret sauce.